Hello and welcome to the UCL and British Academy podcast series, Working Well with AI. I'm Rose Luckin, Professor of Learner-Centred Design at the UCL Knowledge Lab. In this podcast series, we're exploring how artificial intelligence, AI, is changing the world of work. AI has long been predicted to reshape our working lives, and it has developed in leaps and bounds over the past decade. And as we emerge from a global pandemic, we're rethinking how we work, what sort of work we value, and what we need for the future. Welcome with me today are Mary Towers from the Trades Union Congress and Rob McCargo, PwC Director of AI. So Mary, can I start with you, please? Can you tell me briefly what gets you fired up in your work about artificial intelligence? So um, thanks, Rose. And in a nutshell, at the TEC, um, along with our member uh, trade unions, we're on a mission to raise awareness about the use of AI to recruit and manage people at work the impact that this has on workers, as well as the opportunities um, that AI can present for them. And just to be clear, I'm talking about the use of AI to make decisions as important as who gets fired, who gets hired, how work gets allocated, who gets a bonus, the type of decisions that really do impact on people's lives. And so as well as seeking to raise awareness about the very existence of these types of technologies, and awareness is shockingly low, um, we're also seeking to raise awareness about how the lived worker experience of technology really matters for all of us. And trade unions are uniquely placed to make the worker experience heard. Um, and that's why in the context of um, the TUC's AI project, through our research and our legal report, our AI manifesto, we've been advocating for changes at work and in the law to ensure that human values and dignity at work aren't overlooked um, in the name of commercial and technological advancement. I can understand why that would get you fired up. It's such an important topic, isn't it? And the fact that so few people know, I think, is, is, is a concern. Rob, over to you. Uh, likewise. What really sparks your interest most about the work that you do with artificial intelligence? Well, thanks for having us on the podcast today, Rose. It's a, it's a great opportunity to talk about this uh, key topic. Uh, from a, a background in HR resourcing, uh, before I moved into technology, I've always been interested in this space full stop. What's been interesting, though, is uh, as Mary was uh, speaking to, the, the awareness of how the world of work, employment and, and the technology colliding is really poorly understood. And similar to the TUC, we also engage with organisations across the board in every sector. So we have quite an influential voice in the, in, the, in the conversation. What's been in particular of interest to me, though, is how this conversation evolved in the last five years. I think that uh, moment five years ago was when government started uh, awakening to the implications of AI. They were increasingly aware of the economic opportunity posed by AI. Um, however, even as short as time ago as five years ago, it, it felt still quite ethereal and hypothetical. Many of the talks I was giving at the time or giving evidence on the all-party parliamentary group on AI in which I sit, were still uh, fairly hypothetical by nature. What I think has happened in particular over the last year and a half uh, during the, the pandemic has really brought this to life. We're seeing real-world impact of technologies like AI in the workplace surfacing in the press. And uh, many of these are too important to ignore. And it's crucial that businesses, not just HR directors, but executives across the board are attuned to the opportunities, but equally 
fully aware of the downside risk and walk into this uh, opportunity and situation with their eyes wide open. I couldn't agree more. And, and I think it's a really interesting point you make about how the rhetoric has changed and things have become more concrete and more real world examples, um, which is extremely useful. And today we're really focusing on the subject of good work uh, and what could that mean alongside AI? So again, I'm, I'm gonna come to you first again, Mary. I mean, you've already um, indicated some of the areas of concern for, for the TUC. And I know you've also done a lot of work on what workers want. So could you give us some ideas about what you think makes for good work? Sure, yeah, thanks, Rose. So um, I mentioned um, our AI project and that we'd carried out um, some research to establish how the use of AI um, at work was impacting on workers. And using that research, we identified a series of objectives and values. And so based on those project outcomes, I think I'd like to um, highlight three of the um, potential features of good work um, in a world of being managed by AI. And those three features are worker voice, um, equality, and that's equality of reward, treatment and access, and also dignity at work. And so first, looking at worker voice, so we say that the key to good work is strong worker voice and any good relationships based on good communication and the employment relationship um, is no different. You know, we believe that everyone at work should have a say in deciding whether or not AI is introduced to make important decisions about people. And it's through active communication and consultation that the negative impacts of AI on workers can be best avoided. And good communication at work can come in many forms. So, for example, employers carrying out active consultation with union and unions and workers before implementing new technologies, um, employers and unions coming together to negotiate collective agreements that have provisions on technology at work, um, and also not to be overlooked in any way is the importance just of, of individuals communicating on a one-to-one -one basis, you know, union reps, workers, managers, actually talking to each other in an open, constructive way to solve problems. And to do this, we all need the right vocabulary and the right understanding to communicate effectively about technology. And listening to workers, I want to stress, is good for the economy and for productivity, you know, not just for workers. I think that's a really um, a, a sort of important um, point to make. Um, and then secondly, equality. And I mentioned that I mean equality um, not in a singular way, but equality in terms of reward, equality in terms of treatment and equality in terms of access. So we think workers should have a fair share in the rewards of technology at work. Um, for example, through good terms and conditions, good pay, good hours, good working environment. And so I think I'd sum that up as a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. You know, workers don't want the use of AI to result in more insecure work, lower pay, work intensification. They want good work for them. And that means the opposite of all of those things. They want secure work, you know, higher pay um, and, and fair, um, fair requirements in terms of um, the amount of work that they're required to produce in the time given. And then crucially, fair treatment, you know, not to be discriminated against, and then equal access to AI so that no one's shut out of the benefits of AI. You know, for example, a disabled person, someone who's blind, ought to be able to access um, AI power training just as much as anyone else. Um, 
And then finally, and and really crucially, dignity at work. And we called our um, AI manifesto at the TUC, Dignity at Work and the AI Revolution. And the reason that we chose that title is because our research revealed the extent to which the use of AI at work can threaten human dignity and human connection and human agency. And we heard from workers that they really don't want to be subject to excessive monitoring and surveillance because that impacts negatively on their mental health and on their physical health, that they'd like work home boundaries to be respected and that they value being free and being trusted to make decisions at work and to carry out their tasks with a degree of agency. Um, and they also really value in-person engagement, you know, have, having one-to-one in-person conversations with their manager. Um, so I'd go so far as to say, really, that dignity, um, you know, is the foundation of all um, of all good work, um, and that respect for human values and dignity should be at the heart of development and application of new technology at work. I agree, and I just wonder if one complication with AI, and you have referred to it already Mary is that for a lot of people they don't understand it and therefore it's hard for them to have a voice say in the decisions that are being made about what kind of AI should be brought in because they may not know what it means when they're told that x monitoring system is going to be brought in or or, or whatever so there's quite there's quite a job there isn't there for the trade union movement in making sure that people are educated enough in order to be able to use their voice effectively. Absolutely. It's a really important piece of work for us to do in terms of training reps and training workers. It's a a piece of education work, but it's also a piece of work that we think can be done hand in hand with employers. Because when we've spoken to employers and to people that work in HR, you know, what we've discovered is that essentially they've got the mirror image of the problems that we've had in that, you know, people within an HR department will find, well, hang on a minute. We don't understand how this technology works. You know, we can't actually communicate about it. Are we getting what we really want from the technologists in terms of products that actually reflect the true nature of the employment relationship. And so whilst we're undertaking um, a piece of education um, and training work um, with reps and workers over how to communicate over the technologies and understand the technologies, that's something that we believe we can work hand in hand with employers to achieve. That sounds great. I think that notion of partnership is really important. And Rob, I was really interested to hear that you'd come from a an HR background. I hadn't realised that before, but but I know that you're very much interested in your current role in well-being at work. Um, and I just wondered how you think that complements the kinds of things that that Mary's just been talking about, and that TUC have identified as making good work. It's it's really interesting this topic. So I think there is far greater alignment between the, the trades unions and business leadership uh, than one would suppose. Um, if you look now at the, uh, not just the, the moral question, but the commercial and regulatory questions posed to business leaders now around the ESG agenda is absolutely top of mind. You know, we've just announced a huge investment in that to advise clients to, to get fit for, fit for purpose around this agenda. Um, a corporate purpose, I think, has come into question much more how have organizations treated their staff during the pandemic? I think this is now being looked at by the talent out there in terms of who they want to join. And I think we've got to agree that the, the absolute fundamental bedrock of the world of work has shifted beyond recognition and there's no going back. 
Um, I just thought I'd pull a couple of stats out from a really major survey we did a few months ago. It's our hopes and fears survey. And we um, we surveyed 32,500 workers across uh, multiple countries and industry sectors. Um, 72% want to work in this hybrid way of working. Only 9% of those who can work remotely want to go back full time. 19% of people don't want to go back at all. I mean, I appreciate there's big differences between blue and white collar workforce here. I, I do appreciate that. But this is now a different way in which organizations are contracting with their people. And in particular, the measures that determine success and longevity and well-being are now in the main, not appropriate. They're not fit for purpose. Most of these things are based on things like employee sentiment garnered through surveys and pulse survey data or attrition data when it's too late in the day to do much about. So you've also got, and Mary and I have spoken a lot about this in previous events, there's already that sort of background anxiety in workers evident around things like the advent of job automation. This same study picked that out and said that 60% of workers surveyed were worried about automation putting their job at risk, and 39% of them said that their job could be obsolete within five years. So you've already got this sort of burning platform of anxiety in workforces, and now this uh, new situation of hybrid working. And I think the business leaders I speak to are walking into this with good intentions about using this opportunity to make work better. My deep concern with this, and I'm sure both of you will agree, is that we could be walking into this world of unintended consequences, and certain parts of your workforce could end up being more adversely affected than others. So, so this was a, a huge uh, motivation for me because I, I really struggle to sort of operate in this binary world of AI is either good or bad. And uh, I think there's been a huge amount of debate around where it's gone wrong. And we'll talk about this, I'm sure, during the conversation. One thing that, that we've done is, is a huge uh, project with a thousand volunteers to, uh, to combine everything from biometric, cognitive, psychometric, and contextual data to give workers their own insights into what's making them tick in the workplace, uh, empowering them to help with behavioral change and pointing towards interventions to help their well-being. Um, the, the, ben the employer benefits from this because we think a happy and, uh, and, and vibrant workforce that's empowered around their health and well-being is, by default, much more productive and performs to a higher standard. So, uh, so that's been a hugely exciting area to try to take inspiration from the likes of Mary's work at the TUC and others and many other civil society bodies I work with and show how it can be done well with the safeguards in place, with the right people in the room from the start, and not just leaving it purely in the hands of the technologists to 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 lead from the front. Yeah, that's the risk, isn't it, sometimes that it does be it's seen as something that the technology department will deal with and, and, and that's that rather than looking at it more broadly. And and that certainly makes me think in terms of the conversations we've had so far that there's a lot to be said about the experience of work. It's very nuanced, isn't it? It's not it's either good or bad. It's either your job's going to go or it's not going to go. It, it, it's much more about changing the way that people work and the experience they have. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, Rob, where you see the areas that we should pay most attention to. Is it that unintended consequences or is there something else? And when I say pay most attention to, that could be positive or negative. I think it depends on the lens you're looking at it through. And I entirely agree with what Mary said about uh, the need to upskill 
and empower uh, non-technical managers to understand the implications of the technology they're um, uh, acquiring and deploying. And that uh, anecdotally corresponds with everything I do. I spend a lot of time you know, running workshops and training courses and awareness is quite low. Um, that, so that, that's, that's, that's crucial, I think. And the same with, with upskilling workers to understand the implications of this technology is key. I, I think, though, I mean, I, I, I think we've got to think about the, the, the opportunities to use this technology to make things better. And, and I think there are great opportunities through personalization to create work experience that's much more suited to the individual circumstances. If you think about this, you know, in terms of an inversion in the employer-employee contract, that I think in this new way of work, the very essence in the way that work is consumed could change. And uh, and, and the, the technology is now potentially getting to the point where you can start thinking about how do you produce the optimal environment, conditions, and you know circumstances in which that person's empowered, they flourished, not just around time of day they're working and where and who, um, but but with the tools at their disposal to to liberate them to 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 um, do their best work. And um, I appreciate this sounds a bit utopian. I, I'm I can assure you I'm the first to be the critic in the sector in, from the industry perspective. But I remain upbeat that if it's done well, it can lead to great results. Um, but I'm not so blind to think that you can just let this run loose and it will happen by default. But it is that, isn't it? If it's done well, I agree with you. And and I was thinking as you were describing the the well-being work with your thousand volunteers. That's a really nice way of helping people to understand a little bit more about what's possible with AI, because it's very much about them and it's about their data and helping them to understand their needs more. That seems like an excellent way to perhaps start to alleviate a few of people's concerns um, because they have a greater understanding of the benefits that can come from this kind of work. I think so. I think so. I think I think at the heart of this is the word trust, isn't it? Uh, and I think many of the situations that have arisen in the last four or five years in particular, it's been where there's been an innate lack of trust between employer and employee. Uh, Technology has been deployed at people rather than co-created with them. Uh, communication lines have been poor. And uh, no surprise, it's led to some poor outcomes. Uh, and I think there is a good way of doing it. And engagement up front, trans- full transparency, and, and starting from that strong bedrock of trust is essential. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. People disengage, especially when you're inviting people to volunteer to wear a, a biometric device, then that just wouldn't work if there's that inherent lack of uh, trust and a power imbalance at the heart of the deal. Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. Uh, Mary, what are the main concerns that you see coming in from workers in your uh, role at the TUC? Yeah, so I, I think Rob's right about the speed at which these technologies have been rolled out. And I, I think, you know, possibly in no other industry would a product be rolled out without having first tested what the impact of that product might be on the consumers of the product. And what's interesting is that, you know, it's, it's sort of often for some reason overlooked that in a way there are two consumers for these kind of HR, um, AI powered um, tools. And those are the employer, but also the worker. And so what we saw in our research were a a sort of series of negative implications that workers were experiencing as a result of these technologies. Um, And yeah, I'll just maybe I could just take you through some of the main um, kind of messages, if you like, that came back from that research. Um, 
So firstly, and we've already touched on this, we found that a lot of workers just simply weren't aware of when our AI was being used to recruit or manage them. So for example, one worker commented in response to our survey, I just can't actually answer any of these questions because I just don't know. And that in itself is really concerning. Um, Also, workers didn't generally seem to be asked for their consent before new technologies were introduced at work. And workers actually really wanted to be consulted, but unfortunately, consultation just wasn't common. So only about a third of workers were consulted before new technology was introduced at work. And then returning to this idea of trust, so workers felt a really low level of trust and confidence in the ability of AI to make decisions about them. So only about 28% or so of workers were comfortable with the idea that AI could make um, decisions about people at work. And then also, um, harking back to our point about communication, so workers felt there were really significant barriers to being able to challenge decisions that were being made about them by AI. And one of those barriers was an inability to actually communicate about AI, but also that um, workers found that employers seemed to just make an assumption that because it was technology making the decision, it must be right because it's technology. Um, And so often people found themselves in this loop where they knew there was an unfairness, but they just couldn't challenge it. And that does suggest a lack of understanding on the part of employers about what AI is capable of doing, because it does make just, there's so many examples of where inappropriate decisions are made that, um, that they certainly should be aware of, I would have thought. I think one of the problems is the it's literally the complexity. So you have an outcome which seems straightforward, but behind that there is so much complexity. You know, ranging from well, what what type of data um, you know was used um, to train the you know, and what uh, what is the actual context? How is that how is that technology now being applied? Is it taking into account environment? Is it taking into account all the different factors that might be relevant in a situation in which someone's exercising judgment? Um, you know, it's it's so complex. Um, so I think that's, um, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why there's just this enormous barrier. Um, and, and that's where, you know, things like transparency and explainability are just so important. Um, but we also found that um, there was a, a negative impact on physical and um, mental well-being. Um, and that was due to work intensification. So unreasonable demands in terms of targets that were being um, sort of set by the technology, again, without taking um, proper account of context and environment. Um, and then also, um, I mentioned a lack of, um, of sort of agency over um, decisions and how work was being done. That, that in itself appeared to impact negatively on mental health, and particularly the inability to challenge decisions was impacting negatively on, um, on mental health. Um, And then also workers were really concerned about unfair um, and indeed unlawful outcomes. So discriminatory outcomes, but also all different types of of unfairness. You know, for example, low ratings um, that had been based on inaccurate data that then impacted on the ability to access um, performance related bonuses, that that type of unfairness. Um, So a really, really um, sort of broad range of different, um, different concerns that workers expressed. There's a lot to, to, to think about in what you've said, isn't there? Um, and a lot of it is quite concerning. And both you and, and, and Rob have, have um, agreed about the need for trust as being a key way um, of moving forward. Um, I'm sure that people listening to this will want to replay a lot of what's been said to take it in again, because there's a lot of uh, very useful information there. 
I'm just wondering now what you feel is the way that we move forward in the future. So what's your vision of what good work could look like in the future, starting with Mary? So I've I've already touched on um, I think some of the the values that we're suggesting that employers adopt, and we set out those values in our manifesto, and they include um, things that we've already explored really in terms of worker voice, the importance of worker voice, the importance of um, the importance of equality, the importance of transparency um, and explainability. Um, so rather than re- sort of revisit um those values um perhaps i could just mention a bit about um innovation and how workers themselves might benefit from the use of ai um at work so uh, i suppose a, a kind of utopian good work future with ai for me um would involve workers having equal control over their data um and how it's used and workers would be able to collectivize their own data um, and then with the help of trade unions, realize the power of that data. Um, so, for example, by using it um, to evidence campaigning, trade union campaigning for better terms and conditions at work, um, or perhaps engaging data scientists um, to, uh, with trade union help to conduct analysis. Um, of the data um, to secure equal pay or indeed to identify patterns um, of discrimination. Um, so I think in, in this ideal future, all the, the, the key parties would, would be sort of collaborating and working together and there would be equality in terms of um, a fair um, fair share and fair treatment of the rewards of the use of technology at work. And that applies also in terms of the potential benefits of innovation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Rob, from your perspective, what do you think good work for for people working for PwC, what do you think good work alongside AI could look like? I love what uh, Mary had to say there about, you know, this being much more able to benefit the the whole of your workforce rather than just a a small coterie. And this whole upskilling agenda is vital at the heart of this, isn't it? You know, so we don't know what the jobs will look like in five, 10, 15 years time. You know, the the only one I'm sure of is that uh, hairdressers and barbers apparently uh, are fairly uh, vulnerable to the advent of technology. The other one I heard was um, AI struggles with British sarcasm quite a lot. So sarcasm trainers (laughs) will be in high demand in the years to come. But for the rest of us, you know, we just don't know, do we? And we, we have to ensure that everybody's got a fighting chance for a viable future. And that, that's one thing that we've done. We, we Rather than just uh, tr- rolling a few training courses out for technologists, we decided to upskill the entirety of our 285,000 people globally. This is everyone from the people on front desk and the receptionists through to the board on you know data analytics tools, uh, robotic process automation, um, you know, and uh, right up to fully-fledged AI over the course of time with the promise that, you know, we, we can't say what job you'll be doing in five, 10 years time, but if you opt in, uh, we can say you'll be doing something with us. Uh, and that's sort of created quite a nice bottom-up groundswell of um, attraction towards actually putting you know the control within your own hands on your future. So there's something quite powerful about, you know, uh, in, as, as Mary was saying, around innovation coming from the workforce rather than being retained in the little R&D hub. From a vision point of view, though, I mean, extending what I was saying on that project I've been running is, you know how we've seen this quite paradigm shift over the last few years. Um, It sort of started with some of the big investment companies seeing the sort of change in direction in the market around things like climate change and then 
gender inequality. We've seen uh, people stepping in and to start thinking about how investments are made, depending on the composition of boards. We've now got a huge uh, focus, as I said before, on ESG. And this is now locked in, I think, to many investment portfolios and capital markets. Scrutiny is increasing substantially off the back of this. What I would love to see is if this tool's that could be evolved over the next few years, could see uh, executives' compensation linked to wellness of their workforce. Uh, and can you, can you imagine a competitive drive towards outperforming your peers on how well your workers are looked after? And there's mutual exclusive benefits there, isn't there, in terms of talent attraction, retention, and uh, an output and production. So, you know, it could happen. And, and I think the the... the the significant shift we've seen in the way that work has changed in the last year and a half has given, I think, many different parts of the workforce and management that belief that things can change demonstrably and quickly rather than sort of iterated at the edge uh, and can be done for good, not just for negative means. So, uh, yeah, huge opportunities to redefine the very essence of the way that work is delivered and management are compensated for that. Absolutely. And it's interesting you draw that analogy with the speed of change over the last 18 months with the possibilities for people actually embracing perhaps more wholeheartedly the fact that AI can, you know, good work alongside AI can happen in lots of different ways and in ways that they hadn't thought of previously. And that actually it can happen quickly. I think that's that's fascinating. That was really a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Our guests today were Mary Towers from the Trades Union Congress and Rob McCargo from PwC, and he's Director of AI at PwC. Thank you both, Rob and Mary. You've been listening to Working Well with AI. This episode was presented by myself, Rose Luckin. Editing and mixing is by Susie McCarthy. The series is funded by UCL Public Policy, UCL Grand Challenges and the British Academy. To find out more about the AI and the Future of Work project, search for UCL AI and the Future of Work. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.